0: Um, Would you please turn with me um, in your Bible to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians? We're going to be looking at verses 4 and 5 tonight, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, and we'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Question 157 of the Westminster Larger Catechism asks, How is the word of God to be read? It answers, The holy scriptures are to be read with an high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God and that he only can enable us to understand them. With desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them, with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. So I would ask you to all stand with me tonight out of reverence for the reading of God's word. I'm only, of course, insofar as you're able to do so. And let us receive it tonight with a firm persuasion that it is not the word of man, but the word of God. This is God's holy word from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. May the Lord bless the reading of his word tonight, sealing it upon our hearts. Uh, please be seated. The topic with which we'll be dealing tonight uh, is the accomplishment of redemption. And we're going to be considering this topic under three short headings. First, the plan of redemption. Second, the person of redemption. And finally, the work of of redemption, Uh, for as we remember the birth of our blessed Redeemer this week, uh, we must not forget the reason for which he was born. Uh, Probably it would be helpful to begin tonight uh, by defining this word, definition. In his classic work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, John Murray carefully defines it for us. He writes, The idea of redemption must not be reduced to the general notion of deliverance. The language of redemption is the language of purchase, and more specifically, of a ransom. And ransom is the securing of a release by the payment of a price. The securing of a release by the payment of a price. In other words, the very language of redemption implies a ransom that secures our release from some kind of captivity. It secures our release from bondage by the payment of a price. In the words of that old Advent hymn, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free Thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Or Again, in the well-known words of Charles Wesley, come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. So, this is indeed the language of redemption. It's the securing of our release from captivity by the payment of a price. Now, since this idea of redemption uh, presupposes a bondage from which the captives are released, it would be helpful to reflect upon this idea of bondage as well uh, before turning to our first heading tonight. The words from the hymns just quoted a moment ago um, start to summarize this idea for us. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave born to, to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. So, what exactly does this bondage entail? The term bondage appears only twice in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's interesting to consider each case in context. In paragraph four of chapter nine, it says, when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin, And by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. In other words, on account of the fall of our first parents, um, who were seduced to sin by the subtlety of Satan, all of humanity is born in natural bondage under sin. Every single last one of us. That is the natural condition of fallen humanity. And it means we're incapable of accomplishing any good accompanying salvation. We're born in bondage. The second place in which bondage appears in the confession is paragraph 1 of chapter 20. It says, the liberty which Christ hath purchased. Notice the language of redemption. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, the dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. So in short, this bondage from which Christ secures the release of his people by the payment of a price entails a natural bondage under sin, wherein every single person is born guilty before God, condemned by God's wrath and by the curse of the moral law. Everyone is born a captive to this present evil world in bondage to Satan under the dominion of sin, heading toward death, heading toward death and everlasting damnation. Is that not a a desperate condition of captivity? Is that not a despondent case of bondage? It is indeed the plight of all of humanity in Adam. And it's the plight from which God sent his son to redeem us. Now, having considered the uh, meanings of redemption and bondage, Uh, Let's turn our attention to our first heading tonight, the plan of redemption, the plan of redemption. It's rather clear from Scripture that our sovereign God wasn't surprised by the fall. He wasn't caught off guard by the fall. In fact, long before the foundation of the world, long before the creation of the universe, Our triune God decreed not only the fall in Adam, but redemption in Christ. In other words, this plan of redemption was decreed, it was designed uh, within the uh, eternal wisdom and counsel of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's an inter-Trinitarian plan of redemption, uh, which preceded the creation of the world, Perhaps it would be helpful here to uh, illustrate this point with a building. A building is designed long before it's built, is it not? Long before it's, it's ever built, long before it's ever constructed, an architect plans the various features of the building. Well, in a similar way, we're, we're speaking about a plan of redemption uh, long before its execution In time. And then, when the fullness of time had come, it was executed exactly according to God's design. As John Murray again puts it, there must be in the eternal plan or design as archetype what corresponds to that which is fulfilled in execution. Now, this plan of redemption was mentioned from the very beginning. Um, even as Pastor Toli has already mentioned tonight, from the, from the very beginning, God promises to redeem his people. In Genesis 3, for, thir, uh, excuse me, 315, um, in Genesis 315, while cursing the serpent, our Lord God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. He'll crush the serpent and destroy his work in order to accomplish this plan of redemption. After this initial gospel promise from the very beginning, um, of course, this plan is progressively revealed in Scripture. It's opened up for us as the plan unfolds. It's revealed to Abraham, in whose seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's revealed to David, in whose seed God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the plan about which uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But even though this plan of redemption was designed in the eternal wisdom and counsel of the triune God, even though it was uh, progressively revealed to us in Scripture, it was only executed when the fullness of time had come. For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Now that brings us here to our second heading tonight, The Person of Redemption the Redeemer. Notice what it says in verse 4 of our text. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. It's a trustworthy saying that our redemption could not have been accomplished apart from God's sending forth of this person. And indeed, the the thing that makes our redemption effectual, the thing that makes our redemption powerful, is the uniqueness of this person sent by God. For in this person, the, the eternal Son of God, two natures were joined together without any confusion of either the divine Son of God added to his person human nature by means of the miraculous virgin birth. Now, both of these natures, divine and human, are mentioned here in our text. For instance, it says that God sent forth his Son. Uh, That's a phrase, of course, that's very common in the Gospel of John. It appears a, a number of times in John's Gospel and it implies that the, the Son was existing before he was sent from somewhere. In John six thirty eight, our Lord Christ says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of the one who sent me. In other words, the, the Son of God was existing in heaven before he was sent. And he was sent to accomplish this plan of redemption. This is a son about whom uh, John speaks in the very first words of his gospel, uh, the words that we all know so well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God, that means that the Word, the Son of God, was was existing before the world was created, in the beginning. Drawing our attention back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, the Son already was. He was already existing. He was already existing as as a distinct person from God the Father. He was with God. And yet, he was also already existing equally as God. He was God. So, not only was there never a time in which the Son of God didn't exist, there was never a time in which his divinity wasn't one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, equal in glory, a majesty. But it wasn't enough for this person to be fully God, uh, was it? He also had to become fully man. For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. In other words, this eternal Son of God through whom all things were created, through whom all things were made, became human when the fullness of time had come. He added to his person human nature through his miraculous conception in the virgin's womb so that he would be born of woman. And yet he did so without ceasing himself to be God. The Puritan Thomas Brooks writes, Christ is one and the same, begotten of the Father without time, the Son of God without mother, and born of the Virgin in time, the Son of Man without father, the natural and consubstantial Son of both. So since Adam plunged humanity um, into the bondage of sin, the eternal Son likewise partook of the same humanity. He partook of the same flesh and blood, He became flesh himself and dwelt among us. And he did so to accomplish this plan of redemption. He became like us in every single way, only without sin. Now, if this person of redemption, this redeemer, uh, were not fully God, he couldn't have redeemed us. If he were not fully man, he couldn't have redeemed us. He had to be both. And so while being fully God, he became fully man without either nature undergoing any confusion, change, division, or separation. He became man while preserving both natures and joining them together in his person. He isn't divided into two persons. He is the one and same, only begotten Son of God who has always existed and yet in time added to his person human nature. Thomas Boston uh, further fleshes this out for us, this, this glorious mystery of the incarnation, this unique person who purchased our redemption. He writes, It was necessary... That the natures be distinct, because otherwise, either the divinity would have advanced his humanity above the capacity of suffering, or his humanity depressed his divinity below the capacity of meriting. And it was necessary that he should be one person, because otherwise his blood had not been the blood of God nor of the Son of God, and so not of infinite value. So in order to accomplish this plan of redemption, a a very unique person had to be sent by God. And this person was fully God and became fully human. He became fully human to accomplish the plan of redemption. Now that brings us here to our third and final heading tonight. The work of redemption. Notice what it says in verses 4 through 5 of our text. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's helpful to think about this work of redemption in two ways the payment of a price and the purchase of an inheritance. According to John Murray, of course, redemption refers to securing our release from bondage by the payment of a price. And here in our text, it says that Christ was born under the law to redeem us, or excuse me, to redeem those who were under the law. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He was born under the law to secure release from it. Now, in the most immediate context here, Uh, This is referring to the release of Israel from the bondage of the ceremonies under the Old Covenant. For instance, in paragraph 1 of chapter 20 in the Westminster Confession, it says, But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law, to which the Jewish church was subjected. But it's also the case that this yoke of the ceremonial law was meant to remind us that all men in Adam are under the bondage of sin. All men in Adam are under the curse of the moral law. For that law requires perfect perpetual obedience to God, which sinners such as ourselves could could never render unto God. We were born guilty of sin, inclined to hate God and our neighbor without any health in us. Is this not why God sent his son to be born under the law? Did he not send him to, to bear the curse of the law in his body on the tree? Did he not send him to spill his blood for ruined sinners, to, to shed his blood on the cross in the place of ruined sinners? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone Who is hanged on a tree? Christ bore the curse that you deserved in your place in order to purchase your redemption and to release you from this bondage of sin. Indeed, even tonight, this this very same God who sent his Son calls sinners to repentance. He calls sinners to repent and believe in this holy gospel. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you cast yourself upon Christ, trusting in his work of redemption, then you'll be released from the curse of the law by the shedding of his blood. William Perkins writes, Who are partakers of this redemption? They which see and feel and bewail their condition that they are under the law and free from the sentence thereof to the throne of grace for mercy. They which see and feel and bewail their condition that they are under the law and flee from the sentence thereof to the throne of grace for mercy. If you roll your soul upon Jesus Christ by placing your faith in him, then you too will share in his redemption. Now, not only does this work of redemption involve the payment of a price, it also involves the purchase of a glorious inheritance. For not only was Christ born under the law to bear its curse. He was born under the law to fulfill its demands. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, not only did Christ pay the price of redemption by the shedding of his blood, but he also secured our right and title to eternal life through his obedience. He fulfilled the demands of the law in our place. And through simple faith in Christ, his righteousness is counted to you. Through simple faith in Jesus Christ, his right standing in the light of God's holy law is counted to you. And you are reckoned as righteous. As it says in our text, Christ was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. John Flavel writes, divine adoption is that special benefit whereby God, for Christ's sake, accepteth us as sons and makes us heirs of eternal life with him. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful thought. Christ has not only paid the price of our redemption by the shedding of his blood, he has secured our right and title to eternal life as well. God has qualified us in Christ to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It is indeed for this very reason that God the Son was born. He decreed as one with the Father and the Holy Spirit long before the foundation of the world, not only the fall in Adam, but this plan of redemption as well. It was designed in the eternal wisdom and counsel of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's an intertrinitarian plan of redemption which preceded the creation of the world plan required a very unique person. It required the eternal Son of God to join to His person human nature without compromising His divinity in any way. It required the eternal Son of God to become man even as He presently continues to be, sitting at the right hand of the Father now in a human body, glorified, glorified, even as he presently continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. It is this very unique person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born under the law to accomplish this plan of redemption, to accomplish the work of redemption. He shed his own blood, the blood of God, to pay the price that was required for our release. And he fulfilled the demands of the law to purchase our inheritance. It is the Lord Jesus Christ alone who is the redeemer of God's elect. And there is redemption found in no one else but him. There is redemption found in no one else but him. I would like to leave you tonight with the words of John MacArthur to ponder throughout this week. He writes, The important issue of Christmas is not so much that that Jesus came, but why he came. There was no salvation in his birth, nor did the sinless way he lived his life have any redemptive force of its own. His example, as flawless as it was, could not rescue men from their sins. Even his teaching, the greatest truth ever revealed to man, could not save us from our sins. There was a price to be paid for our sins. Here's a side to the Christmas story that isn't often told. Those soft little hands, fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day stagger up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head, with sparkling eyes and eager mouth, was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. Jesus was born to die, to shed his blood in order to pay the price that was necessary to release us from our captivity. Let us not forget the reason for which our loving God sent his Son. Let us acknowledge and confess our sins, trusting in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ to cleanse us from all of our sins. And let us marvel this season at the accomplishment of redemption. Let's pray. Our holy God and heavenly Father, we marvel at the mystery of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ we marvel at the wisdom of this plan of redemption conceived in the mind of the eternal God. Put into practice in time, accomplished in time, when you sent forth your Son, the second person of the Trinity, to add to himself human nature in order to fulfill the requirements of your holy law, in order to lay down his life suffering and dying on the cross to secure our redemption. Oh God, we worship you as we reflect upon this glorious plan which redounds to your glory. We thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. We thank you for the inheritance that he has secured for us. We thank you for the redemption that we enjoy all on account of your sovereign love.